Greetings. I'm glad for the second week in a row to be making good on my promise to provide some additional insight, content, ideas related to the messages each week. This past week, we spent some time with the three core disciples, Peter, James, and John, as they struggled and failed to come alongside Jesus to watch with him in his hour of prayer in Gethsemane. And I mentioned in the message that Jesus's prayer, the little snippet the disciples managed to stay awake long enough to hear and remember, has echoes of Romans 8. Romans 8 provides insight into the sort of prayer that Jesus is praying, and further it connects back to Israel's prayer book, the Psalms, where the most dominant single form, the most prevalent single type of prayer that we have recorded in that prayer manual is an individual psalm of lament, a psalm of complaint. Someone that I've been interacting with recently in a spiritual cohort calls lament giving God an earful. And that's an underappreciated aspect of prayer that is given to us, that is modeled for us in Scripture and especially in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, and that is described in Romans 8. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time with this text with us to, to further offer some insight into how we might watch with Jesus in prayer, how we might engage in prayer ourselves. But more than that, the takeaway from the Gethsemane episode is not the disciples' failure. There are lessons for us to learn, to be sure, and I highlighted those. But one of the biggest takeaways is that in the midst of our failure, and we will see this over and over again in this Lenten series, as we look at the companions of the cross who, by and large, fail to remain with Jesus in his hour, the takeaway is not their failure but Jesus's faithfulness. And that's the aspect that Romans 8 brings out that we don't see explicitly in the Psalms of Lament or in other parts of Scripture where faithful servants of God give God an earful. Think of Abraham outside Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. Think of Job throughout the book that bears his name. Think of Jeremiah, who we just spent some time with, saying that God has lied to him and questioning what God has asked him to do on at least a couple of occasions. Romans 8 gives us insight into some things that are going on in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, to borrow a phrase from Paul that he uses elsewhere, when we engage in that kind of prayer. So I want to read this passage. I'm going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 14 of Romans 8 down through about verse 27. If you want to follow along with this, Romans 8, 14 through 27, I'm reading from the ESV. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And I'll just pause here. I usually use gender-neutral terminology when Scripture uses familial language, when it refers to us as children of God or as siblings of one another. Here, the use of son language is deliberate and intentional and significant because in the ancient world, only sons could inherit. And so to be called a son of God is not a matter of 
gender. It is a matter of inheritance, and it's more than simply being children of God. Children of God indicates that we have a likeness to God, that we are image bearers. That is one aspect, but here's something more specific, because not every child was an heir, and that's what's front and center in this passage. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the first link in this passage back to Jesus's prayer in the garden, because that is how he addressed God in the garden, Abba, Father. And it was unique. It was not common, although it was not unheard of, for Jewish people to address God as their father. And in fact, Jesus in John's gospel gets in trouble on more than one occasion for referring to God in this way. It is not informal, it is intimate. So it is not casual, it is not flippant, but it is intimate. The Spirit, verse 16, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so here we see the connection where the disciples miss the opportunity to watch with Jesus, to be with him in his sufferings. And again, this is not a call simply to suffer, that there's a limit of suffering that we must attain to in order to be worthy of God's salvation. But it is to say that we must identify with Jesus in his suffering and death. We must own it as ours. The other place where Paul refers to us as being able to call on Abba Father to refer to God this way is in Galatians, and it follows on the heels of another place where Paul talks about our co-suffering with Christ. He puts himself in that role, saying he has been crucified with Christ. So these ideas are related. They're linking us back to Jesus's experience in the garden. And so Paul says, we must suffer with him in order that we may also glorify with him. And then says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so Paul calls attention to the fact of suffering in this present time. And he doesn't necessarily restrict that to the suffering that comes from identifying with Christ in a hostile world when we think of martyrdom and people being thrown to lions or burned at the stake or otherwise being killed or tortured or suffered for suffering for being identified with Jesus, although that is certainly part of it. Paul here is speaking of the general reality that the world is full of suffering. And here we can think of what we see going on around us. Mega drought in the western part of this country the inhumanity that we see going on in Ukraine and in China's treatment of many of its citizens, the famine as a result of war in Yemen that continues unabated to this point, the various upheavals and crises that we see and read about on a daily basis are all bound up in what Paul is identifying as the sufferings of this present time. And then he says, but that is coming to an end. When the 
sons of God, when the heirs of the kingdom are revealed, when Christ and Christ's family of adopted image bearers, of adopted heirs of the kingdom are revealed, are made known for what they are, then the creation will experience freedom. And this is the key verse, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's the second time that eager waiting, eager longing has been mentioned. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Christianity Faith in Jesus, following Jesus, is essentially hopeful and forward-looking. It says that the sufferings of this present time will be swallowed up in the glorious resurrection, liberating life of Jesus when all things are made new. This is the great hope. It is in this hope that we were saved. And because of that, we do not passively sit idly by and simply endure suffering patiently. That is an aspect of our response to suffering. But oftentimes we imagine that patience means that we accept it as somehow purposeful or part of the plan or that somehow we must submit to God. And this is the part of Jesus' prayer that's critical. When Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done, he is not simply saying whatever happens is supposed to happen and I just have to accept it. He knows that there is an obedience in his going to the cross, and that is what he is praying for, for the faithfulness to obey the mission for which he's been sent, which is to endure the scorn and abuse and the murder, the injustice that will be heaped upon him by the rulers and authorities in Jerusalem, to endure that, to allow all of humanity's sin to be sinned upon him so that upon his death, God may exhibit vindication by raising him from the dead, demonstrating that the powers and principalities do not have a hold on him, and that the life and love of God are stronger than the hate of humanity and the death that it has unleashed on creation. That is what Jesus must be obedient to. What Jesus is not saying is simply, I would like things to go one way, but I know you have a different plan, and I just need to accept circumstances. He's not praying for patience to accept circumstances. He's praying for faithfulness and courage to obey boldly. And that is why the language of groaning and eager longing is so important, because Jesus is impatient to see the suffering pass. Let this cup pass from me. All things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Let it be over. And if there is any way apart from this suffering to accomplish this mission, let's do that. That gives us an insight of the horror of the cross. There is nothing about the crucifixion that is inherently good in God's eyes. Christ's obedience is good in God's eyes. But we do not serve a God who delights in pain and suffering and who is pleased by the suffering of Jesus in itself in some sort of sadistic formula where then God can exchange life for that death. That's not the way that this works. And so Paul says, this is the hope for which we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, 
for who hopes for what they see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there is a patient waiting, but there's an eager waiting. Do you hear the tension? Twice Paul has said that the creation and us eagerly wait. And the creation groans and we groan. And so we wait. We are not waiting passively. We are waiting patiently. We are waiting with endurance and we are waiting with eagerness, with longing, and with groaning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Boy, the last two years, I feel the truth of that verse. I do not know most of the time what to pray for. I am overwhelmed by the massive amount of suffering around me, and my spirit groans. Groans are, as Paul will say in a moment, deeper than words can express. And so I'm just at most points saying, Lord, have mercy. And here the the Lord's Prayer has been a great gift to me. To be able to have that formula to simply say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That, That is the prayer that Jesus is praying, which is not a prayer to say, whatever's going to happen, let it happen. That would be a nonsense prayer. We are praying against the grain of what we see around us. Russia invading Ukraine is not the will of God. Two and a half million Ukrainians fleeing their homes to other countries is not the will of God. Drought in the West is not the will of God. Famine in Africa and Yemen and other places is not the will of God. The mistreatment of Uyghurs is not the will of God. A 7.3 earthquake off the coast of Japan is not the will of God. These are the groanings of the birth pangs of creation that longs for the life and the fullness that God intended. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of Jesus is present, interceding for us. And other passages in Hebrews speak of Christ interceding for us. Christ is awake where the disciples fell asleep. And Christ prays what he prayed in Gethsemane. God, your will be done. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It is a prayer against the grain of what we see around us. And Jesus in the garden is emotional. It's not a dispassionate prayer. He falls to the ground on his face and he cries out. He tells the disciples that his soul is deeply distressed even unto death because he's about to have the sins of the world sinned upon him. He's about to suffer the weight of the groaning of all creation and what humanity has unleashed in his person. When we experience suffering, it should move us not to passively say, well, whatever will be, will be, and that's okay, and I'll patiently endure it. It should cause us to do what Abraham and Moses and the psalmist say, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Where are you? Where is your kingdom? Bring it about. We are eagerly waiting for it. This is the prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane. This is what the disciples would have witnessed had they watched for that hour. And again, the message to us 
is to be encouraged that even when we do not know how to pray, and even when we do not pray, Jesus is not asleep. Jesus is not idle. The Spirit is not idle. The Spirit is praying and interceding for us. And the reason is because of this promise. And this is great to stitch on a pillow, but it is better to understand it in its context. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It is not the case that all the incidents of our lives somehow come together to a happy and sensible resolution within our lifetimes. This passage is not individualistic. This passage is saying that the work of God is moving towards a point where all things will be restored and renewed. That is what Jesus and the Spirit are praying for. That is what we are groaning for, and we know that it will come to pass with certainty. That is the nature of that promise, and it is linked to our prayers. And so we pray with hope, but it is the hope that drives us to the urgency and the fervency and the eagerness, the giving God an earful impatiently. How long, O Lord, will you tarry? How long will you allow this cup of wrath, this cup of suffering, to be drunk by humanity? How long until you come? That is the prayer of God's people throughout time. It is the prayer of Jesus in the garden. It is the prayer of Jesus before the throne of grace. It is the prayer of the Spirit in our hearts assuring us that we are God's heirs, assuring us that we have been saved with hope, and assuring us that all things work towards the good of God's redemption, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God.